It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, for heaven's sake, listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. I wanted to tell you about another podcast produced by the Shalom Hartman Institute that I think you might enjoy. Identity Crisis is a weekly show out of our New York headquarters hosted by my friend and colleague Yehuda Kurtzer. Each week, Yehuda interviews leading thinkers to reveal the core Jewish values underlining central issues. He interviews amazing guests like Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist Brett Stevens, Miriam and Zovin, the millennial TikToker transforming Talmud study for the social media age, author and professor James Loeffler discussing the national reckoning over the 2017 events in Charlottesville, and the ethics of eating impossible pork with scholar-in-residence David Zvikelman. That's just a small example of some of the current events from a Jewish point of view that Yudah gets into week after week. You don't want to miss the show. I have to tell you, it is... I think his podcast is is just unbelievable. It's the second best podcast that no, the Hartman like Institute I have, produces. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love his podcast. It's just amazing. Um, and listeners, I think you will love it. It's a different style. and I really, really recommend it. Uh, subscribe to Identity Crisis. It's available wherever you're listening to this podcast, for heaven's sake, right now. And, and thank you. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is Israelis and the High Holidays. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Let's begin and dive in. As the Jewish world prepares for Rosh Hashanah, we'd like to devote this episode to explore how the high holidays are experienced here in Israel. What's special about it? And what does the way that these holidays are celebrated or experienced tell us about the state of Judaism and Jewish identity in this country? During Israel's early years, the relationship between Jewishness and Israeliness often seemed precarious. Many secular Israelis insisted they weren't Jewish at all, only Israeli, especially when they spoke to Americans, <laughs> when they wanted to aggravate them. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Jewish, I'm Israeli, right? It sometimes seemed as if the country was divided, but you know I'm right, right? The country was divided between a so-called Jewish camp that saw Israel as a natural continuity of three, 4,000 years of our story and an Israeli camp that wanted nothing to do, certainly not with the last 2,000 years of Judaism and the Jewish story that developed. But the place of Jewishness in Israeli identity has been resolved. There is no longer any question about the importance to the strong majority of Israeli Jews of Jewish ritual, especially general holiday observances. Not halachic. What's the term? Fastidiousness? Yes. That's all. It came out. Shechiano, <laughs> I got the word. But it's the holidays, are, they're critical and they're observed. While the law mandates the closure of shops and suspensions of public transportation, Yom Kippur, 
Israeli Jews are otherwise free to observe or ignore the holidays however they want to. You could travel, you can be in parks, you could do a lot of things. Yet there's a sense that the overwhelming majority is choosing to actually participate in some form of holiday observance. And that's what I want us to really delve into today. But what is the nature of this observance? What specifically Israeli rituals and approaches have emerged in recent decades? How is Israeli observance different from that of American Jews? Here, Ilana, we're going to need you a lot. What has been gained and what has been lost in the ways that Israelis choose to mark these holidays? Yossi, Ilana, wonderful to be with you again. Wonderful. Daniel, Ilana, truly a joy. So let's paint a picture. Let's tell a story. Uh, Yossi, you be the painter first. The whole Bible is like this, you know, where our tradition tells us what's important and what's really important. But there's very often a huge gap between what the tradition says we should do and what we do. Jewish people and tradition have this interesting balance where God commands and we laugh. You know, it's like, who's laughing about what? Tradition could say the high holidays, but, you know, they're not so high. But here in Israel, something's happening. Tell the story, Yossi. So for me... The story begins with very mundane details, an almost imperceptible shift in the public atmosphere. So, for example, really a mundane detail, driving today with my wife in Jerusalem, and she said, you know, there's more traffic than usual because it's the week before Rosh Hashanah. And I said, but it's a whole week. And she says, yeah, but everyone knows that the country is going to shut down for three weeks. Once Rosh Hashanah comes in, we don't really reopen till after Sukkot. And so there's more of an effort, a push to get things done. And then I was walking the streets of Jerusalem later on. And, you know, I haven't had much uplift lately walking the streets in Jerusalem because of the difficult political atmosphere here, the, the anxieties that you and I have spoken about. And today, something changed. I was looking at all the people in the street. Everybody looked beautiful. They looked like they were glowing. Now, they didn't realize that they were. Do, are you sounding like a dreamer right now? Well, <laughs> maybe. Maybe I am. I, I, there was but, a book that like, sounded uh, like that. <laughs> but, you know, it was this feeling of, you felt of something. we're all being slowly swept up into a major shift in time. And what's so beautiful about it is that it happens naturally. We're not thinking, oh, it's, you know, it's, we just all know it's Rosh Hashanah. We're all moving in that direction. And I felt really uplifted in ways that I realized affect me every time we have a major holiday cycle. That's what happened. Beautiful. You know, on the first issue, do you know that just a few days ago, there was a major news item on the evening news that, um, we have to be careful because there's not going to be enough chickens. <laughs> this is a news on chicken. We went, there was Iran, there was the queen, there's the coalition crisis, there's some terrorists, and there's chickens. Why? Because they don't kill chickens on Shabbos. So the holidays are Sunday night, Monday. So Friday, they have a normal cycle of chickens for Shabbos. But they're not going to be able to replenish them for the holidays. So on Thursday, you have to buy all your chickens for Rosh Hashanah, and then you have to do the same. So the chicken crisis. Um, <laughs> One more reason to be a vegetarian. What, oh, that's right. But, but this is part of, you know, we joke about it. But one of the great joys is that the national cycle in the most mundane way is this calendar cycle. It's living in Jewish time has a momentum of its own. Has a momentum of its own. And ultimately, and this, like you spoke generally about this feeling 
in the streets. You were feeling something. You didn't explain what it was. And I want to try about one part of it. And if there's another part, I want you to come in. There is the cultural national dimension to it. But what makes the High Holidays so interesting is unlike Pesach, nobody's getting into your kitchen. Nobody's getting in your face. You know, even Shabbos, they're getting into your face. Because they're telling you every seventh day, don't travel, don't do, don't. You feel this don'tness of somebody else being the Lord of the holiday. And even Pesach, not completely, but what you're allowed to buy, who's open, are you allowed to have chametz? You're describing Judaism in the army. <laughs> Everything is don't do this, don't, don't turn off the lights. But also don't. in the public sphere, yeah. there's the rabbit, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They don't happen that often, so you don't feel as if there is this institution telling you what to do. And as we've learned, anytime you don't have an institution telling you what to do, individuals step up. It's when they tell you what to do that you check out. And what I've noticed over the last number of years more and more is that this really is the beginning of the new year for us. Yeah. Yeah. In Israel, in December, nobody says what's your, you know, Sylvester is a party, you know, and I'm all for like, why waste an opportunity for a party? It's like, I'm not, it's not complicated. Is it my year? Not my year. Like nobody here counts that this is going to be 5833. I hope that's what, like that's not, but this is the new year and it is connected Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and there's a solemnity to it. And the idea of a year coming to a close and a new year opening and there is public conversation about it in the schools, on the television. What do we hope for the new year? So Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are solemn days. It's a solemn way yeah. to open up the year. And maybe what you were sensing, it's not a hurrah, you know, it's not what it does no, no, here. No, no, no. There's it's, a wait. There's, there, there's, a, a, there's a quiet. There's a quiet. There's Even if it's not in shul, there is a quiet that encompasses not everybody. And it's one of the reasons why so many Israelis travel on Rosh Hashanah. Maybe it's like, right. like the only way, essentially you have to get out of the country because in the country, there's a heaviness. There's a solemnity is the term. Well, you no, know, it's not heavy. You know, it's not heavy, but it's, it's even, serious. Even, it's serious. Even Yom Kippur isn't heavy. It's, it's serious. It's serious. It's, it's serious because Yom Kippur is a holiday in that tradition. So, you know, even the bike riding, there's something, you'll see it goes beyond just the public sphere. But here's an example where the public sphere pushes you. You know, Heschel yeah. has this famous line about the Shabbat, about prayer, where a student once came to Heschel and said, oh, Rabbi, I can't pray today. The Spirit's not moving me. And Heschel said to him, young man, I think it's time for you to move the Spirit. Yeah. One of the advantages of having a public sphere is that it can push you to move your Spirit. Now, I don't want to over-idealize it, but this really is a new year. Yeah. And people come back from their summer. That rhythm of starting the year with asking, who am I? Who am I going to be? What will be? I think there's something very powerful about that. And even Israelis who couldn't name the Hebrew year that we're entering know that it's a new year and relate to it as a new year. And that's a shared experience here. Look, I have Arab neighbors who will say Shana Tovah. And, and for them, in some way, it also is a new year. In the same way that even Orthodox Jews in the diaspora can't help but being somehow swept up in January 1st. That is a new year there. It's, it's a new year. And it's interesting, you know, that um, my father once had this line about secular Zionism because he grew up very much in this period where it was either secular or Jewish. And he once described it, secular Israelis, as a rebellious teenager 
who went to their parents mm -hmm. and said, I hate you. I hate everything that you stand for. I hate the world that you created for me. I'm leaving. And they got up and went to the door and slammed the door shut, but stayed inside the room. <laughs> that, that was his analogy. Now, he thought that maybe Israel, the land was going to do it. But in fact, I think ultimately owning the public space and where Jewish calendar took over, it didn't have to, by the way, because it's not even called the Jewish calendar in Hebrew. It's called the Hebrew calendar. Mm -hmm. It could have been a completely secularized version. I think when you look at them, and we're not going to do all the holidays, but Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you know, Hanukkah, Tu Bishvat, Purim, Pesach, Shavuot, there's so much potential there. And it's interesting because in the early years of the Zionist movement, there was a, a very intentional effort to secularize the holidays with a fair amount of success. And they grounded the holidays in the agricultural cycle, which didn't, of course, work for all the holidays. It didn't work for Rosh Hashanah. It certainly didn't work for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was a work day on many of the kibbutzim in the really? early years. Yeah? And that began to change as the country settled into itself and stopped being so ideological. Yeah. You know, I think one of the significant things that changed also in this, because it wasn't like this all the time, certainly not in the 50s, 60s, but even in the 70s, I think the emergence of Sephardic culture and the mainstreamness for Sephardic Jewry, the Jewish calendar was always the calendar. It was celebrated in their homes. They were orthodox in the same way that their home was an anchor of their Jewishness. And as they took more dominant the space in Israeli society, what used to be just in the home became externalized and it became natural. Menachem Begin, I remember when he walked on Shabbat to the White House, it was like um, right. that a Jewish state, that was the beginning of that process. And then ultimately the Jewish renewal movement in Israel, which is a movement to renew the connection of Jews to Judaism in however they want to define it. There was like half a billion dollars or more was contributed by North American Jewry to Israeli society to create hundreds of Jewish institutions. Hartman Institute participated in that, but not alone. We created avenues for people to be Jewish. All of a sudden, there was no reason to create a public sphere that was Jewishly neutral. And so we really sense this in Russia. Yeah, no, it's interesting because there is an implicit Jewishness in the public space, but there's also a need to make it explicit. And I'll give you an example. My first Rosh Hashanah, it was uh, 1982, a fraught year. That was the first Lebanon war. I, I know that year very you well. Do. <laughs> you do. It's like I should have a song, like the year I almost died. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, who will live and uh, who, who will die? die? Actually, yeah, the year my brother-in-law died. So it's like so it's, literally yeah. it's the year who shall live and who shall die. And that's – I noticed – the change in secular Israel's relationship to Yom Kippur happened on Yom Kippur in 1973. That was the year of the Yom Kippur War. I happened to have been a student here that year. I was at Hebrew University for my junior year abroad. And I saw how Yom Kippur became what it wasn't for so many secular Israelis, this day of, of reckoning. A holiness. And ever since... Every year, there's this Yom Kippur has a heaviness. Yeah. You yeah. know what holiness means in the Jewish tradition? Uh, holiness has nothing to do with spiritual. Holiness, literally, the term is kadosh, means distinct, separate. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. I, and you're right. Yom Kippur became holy not because of the biblical, but because of the national experiences. But then, since it was a war that demanded Yom Kippur, it was a war that demanded repentance. And um, how amazing it is when you see our national events coincide or overlap with the calendar. Right. So, like in Israel now, it looks like after every Rosh Hashanah, we have an election. <laughs> but but, but it, all joking aside, election is a moment of introspection about the future of the country. Yeah. So having the essence of the pre-election campaign is going to be over the high holiday season. Well, it didn't just happen this year. It looks like it's going to happen like this for many years to come, or it did. But also, there is a mirroring of it. It's almost as if, you know, like how in the Bible, there's the agricultural and the historical. There is the rhythm of Israel. Each one of the holidays seems to somehow speak about values, which are critical for Israeli society. But let, 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 let me use that as a segue. Do you feel that the holidays in Israel are principally national, cultural, or ritual, or where are the values of the holidays? You know, Shabbat, Shabbat in general, the Jewish people have a problem. Because the biggest problem with Shabbat is that it happens 52 times a year. Like, unless you're focused and into a halachic system, anything that happens 52 times a year, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, you can't take it too It's like, it has a problem. But these, I the, think the problem with Shabbat for religious truths is that it's too social. So, but let's leave Shabbat aside. You know, I, we, it, it's, that's an interesting thing. Like, what is the but, social... that, but that's true as well, or even especially for our holidays. For our holidays. Do you think there... What do Israelis celebrate? Like, is it part of the holiday? Is it... How thick is a holiday-based Jewish identity here in Israel? Okay, so let's look at the high holidays. What are the values that the tradition is expecting us to confront? Rosh Hashanah is, uh, well, you laid out the sense of uh, newness, a new start, but looking at oneself deeply. And we have the month of Elul, which, which is a very serious time, the, the, the Hebrew month that precedes Rosh Hashanah. For me, Elul in some ways is uh, almost as powerful as the high holidays themselves, because that's the transitional moment from the mundane year, and you're looking at who you are and what you're carrying into Rosh Hashanah, and you say, is this who I really want to be? So it's the opportunity for transformation. I think there are many Israelis who are at least aware that they're supposed to be going through that process. And there is something in the way that the newspapers, for example, the, the, the newspaper supplements, they'll ask celebrities, in what way do you want to be different in the coming year? Now, it's thin. Of course, it's thin. On the other hand, there is something about the values that's permeating the conversation. And then each person takes that as far as you can. As, as far as they... That's yeah. the opportunity. I, I, that's I, the I, opportunity. I of, tend of, to agree with you. I, my general sense is that the Jewish calendar in Israel is principally a cultural ritual calendar. I don't think we, you know, like a Heschel line about the Shabbat, that to have more doesn't mean to be more, or that Pesach is about the core value of freedom and human dignity. And whatever they are, each holiday stands for an essential value. I think the public rhythm of it creates a focus on these communal rituals. Sukkot is building a sukkah, nothing else. It's not about the environment. It's not about the idea of living in a transitional home and what does it mean to be a stranger in your life. All the speeches that I would have given as a rabbi in a shul for every single holiday 
which would have moved me very deeply. There's no, <laughs> there's no, they're not there. The national dimension takes over and the individual dimension is by and large absent. And that's okay. We're living in a Jewish country and we're living Jewishly and we're doing Jewish things and it creates a strong Jewish identity. There isn't careful analysis. What is the message of Purim? And, you know, you have this great lecture about being a Purim Jew as distinct from being a Pesach Which Jew. I'm never going to say again. Because <laughs> <laughs> but you have this great, I love that. The first time I heard it, I said, I love this. Like, how about the hundredth time you heard it? <laughs> I love you. I can listen to you. Give that lecture three times a year. <laughs> so that's 30 times already. We know each other. But, but in any event, there isn't that. But the exception I think is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely. Because there isn't, you know, so people fast. So there is a group who fast and they run after their kids who ride bicycles. But I think the solemnity, the fact that it's the beginning of the year, the fact that it comes after the summer, the fact that there really aren't, other than fasting, there is the chauffeur. There aren't dominant food rituals. Right. And so the dominant ritual about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur it's being serious. It's being reflective. You know how we celebrate Shavuot here? With newspaper supplements of the latest cheeses. Cheeses, that's right. It. That's, that's really, it. That's the focus. That's right. And, and so all we, the holidays, the supermarkets shift. Yes. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, like it's, it's not a supermarket that's right. holiday. That's right. That's right. And I do think that the lingering trauma of Yom Kippur. That's very 73, which we're coming up to the 50th anniversary. Wow. Every year there is this sense of reliving those days. And it's as if, you know, that was the moment when in those first days when the army was collapsing and the political and military echelon was in complete chaos, that was the moment when the country glimpsed its, its own mortality. And we carry that deeply in us. I think also the idea of Rosh Hashanah, of rebirth of a new year, Oh, very much. It, very it, much. It's just so attractive. It is. You know, it's almost anything is possible. And so this moment on a national level is you and I both feel so deeply what a joy and a privilege it is to live in Israel. And we love being here. Rosh Yom Kippur is a place where the personal, the value, and the national merge. And as you said, we have historical circumstances that contributed to it. It makes for a very special time here in Israel. I don't know how many people from North America or from around the world, come here. But if you came here, you'll even see, it's not mandated, how the traffic, much less car driving on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Sure. Than they're, they're, sure. The country enters another pace, and uh, it's a real gift. You really feel what it means to be in a Jewish home. Yeah. Very, very powerful. Uh, Yossi, let's take a break, and Ilana will join us. Shana Tova. I'm Donald Meltzer, chairman of the board of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Hartman is a home for thinkers and doers who want to make an impact on the Jewish world. Like Hillel and Shammai, it is an essential part of the Jewish continuum, inspiring inquiry and debate, nurturing identity and values, cultivating innovation and tradition. That's the impact you will make with every dollar you contribute. Being on the Hartman board has become an essential part of my family's Jewish legacy. And by supporting the Hartman Institute this high holiday season, you can be a part of that legacy too. Join me. Go to shalomhartman.org forward slash give and make a donation today. 
Ilana, my friend, who liveth on in, on the what is it on on the river of Babylon? Who lives? Oh, we live. Who liveth <laughs> the rivers of Gotham? Who liveth so far away in another world? First of all, how are you? Uh, doing great. I think I'm also a little bit swept up in this beginning of the year spirit in a good way. So it's a little easier when things like the holidays don't start basically till end of September. So we could have a. <laughs> You're, so I'm you could prepare. You're not thrown into it. You can actually prepare. It's a beautiful. That's what thing. Yossi said. Elul, actually, like really the nice. Elul is the month before. You really can't have a serious Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur if you don't have a month beforehand. When it falls yeah. in early, and it's just you yeah, can't. Yeah, you much. can't just say, "Okay, let's be thoughtful." So I, I really appreciate hearing us talk. Where in the tradition? How does it make you? Yeah. Where the, as a Jew who doesn't live here, how does all of this well, meet you? You know, it's a very funny thing because I live in New York City. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are all around me, <laughs> really. Whether it's like stores telling us what they're going to sell us for the holidays, swag that has apples and honey all over it this time of year. So it's not like we're living in this time where, oh my gosh, there's such a difference between my inside and my synagogue life and my outside. In so Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is not like Shavuos. Exactly. It's not, it's not like, Oops. it's not like Shavuot. Exactly. It's not like Shavuot. But at the same time, I think that the idea of being able to think about things on a national level, not just that you might be immersed in something, but you're thinking as a nation. I, I do think that there's a big difference there, right? Because I have two national identities. One is my Jewish identity and one is my American identity. And they're not always on the same calendar, even if I might be immersed in New York with Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And that's actually what I want to look at today is I, I want to think about two instances that are in classical Jewish texts that are really trying to highlight what I think is a difference between them, which speaks to what you're talking about. One, and I'm going to go out of order because I'm going to take the diasporic one first. I mean, diasporic in the sense that actually Jews were living in the land of Israel, but there was a Roman emperor. So it wasn't a Jewish commonwealth. So that's somewhat ironic. But the Jerusalem Talmud tells this story about the emperor Trajan, who's the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And people think the background of the story is that he actually went and temporarily occupied the Fertile Crescent, like Mesopotamia, Iraq area, which is where most Jews outside the Roman Empire lived. And, and maybe that's what this story is talking about, because it goes as follows. It says that Trajan had a son born to him on the ninth of Av, and the Jews fasted. And his daughter died on Hanukkah, and the Jews lit festive lights. And so his wife sent a message to him, to Trajan, and said, you know, instead of trying to conquer the barbarians and bring them under Roman Empire, why don't you go conquer the Jews who are clearly revolting against you? And the way that that Talmudic passage continues, this is in Sukkah 5.1 in the Jerusalem Talmud, which is 55b for people who actually go to the pagination, that it almost makes me think of the Queen of England's death, right? It's like the Queen of England dies, and what are the Jews busy doing? The Jews, let's say, would be lighting Hanukkah candles, let's say if it was that time of year, or the Jews would be celebrating Purim and getting drunk, right? There's something that's just off when Trajan has a child who's born, the Jews should not be fasting because their temple was destroyed, which is actually a national symbol of who they are as the other national symbol of maybe who they're wanted to be, people want them to be, is actually one of mourning. And the same in the reverse. When Trajan's daughter dies, 
they're not living their affective national life on the same calendar and schedules as really the society in which they live. I, I don't find it to be as um, disjointed as that example where it's literally like, Rome is in mourning and the Jews are celebrating or Rome is celebrating and the Jews are in mourning. But there definitely are those aspects of, yeah, 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 I can get swag with, uh, you know, Rosh Hashanah stuff on it. But does that really mean that like as a nation, I mean, I think it's part of the Jewish people as a nation, like who are we? Who do we want to be? Where do we want to go? What's our meaning as a people? I look at that and I contrast it with something that comes from much earlier, which is the description of the Rosh Hashanah that the Jews do when they return from Babylon to build the second temple. And by the way, not a huge group of people, 42,000 people, not a huge group of people, but it's the group of people that is rebuilding, wants to see a Jewish commonwealth in the land of Israel. And in the book of Nehemiah- uh, Ilana, yeah. this is in what, like 520, I believe, or so. Hey, we're thinking like- well, Somewhere around Early, there. let's say late 6th century BCE- to somewhere in the 5th century BCE. Exactly. People disagree with each other about it, right? right. I just wanted but to locate it, the time. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So they're coming back and they're rebuilding. And guess what? Like they have their first Rosh Hashanah that they know about. And this is how it goes. And I think it has such a different flavor. It says at the beginning of chapter 8 of Nehemiah that the entire people assembled as one in the square before the water gate, which is in relationship in Jerusalem. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the scroll of the teaching of Moses, meaning the Torah, with which the Lord had charged Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, that is Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei, Ezra the priest brought the Torah before the congregation. Men, women, anyone who could understand, he read from it, facing the square, facing the people, big public show of it, right? From the first light from early in the morning until midday. This is Rosh Hashanah to the men and the women and anyone who could understand. And everyone was listening intently. And in fact, it describes that the people, as he opens up the scroll, they all stand up. It's almost like um, like a constitutional convention, if we were to think of it in like secular national terms. It's like, whoa, this is our constitution. This is our Torah. We're going to come in here. And it seems like people may have been I don't know, maybe a little bit upset, a little bit sad. And they realize, you know, when you're starting to renew things, you realize what you've lost. And maybe the fact that you're only 42,000 people and maybe the fact that you have a very uphill battle here. And Nehemiah actually and Ezra and the Levites say to the people, today is holy. It's Rosh Hashanah. Don't mourn and don't weep because the people were weeping as they listened to the words of the teaching. It said something to them about who they are and who they want to be. And in fact, he says to them, Go eat choice food and drink sweet drinks and send portions to whoever has nothing prepared, which, by the way, is the same terminology that we use for Purim, Mishloch Manot. You're going to send portions to each other because this day is holy to God. And don't be sad because your rejoicing in the Lord is the source of your strength. And that's what people did. They ate, they drank, they sent portions, they made great merriment. And I just think that's gorgeous. It's the beginning of their year. They've returned. There are people who clearly doesn't know a heck of a lot about their own tradition because they start crying when they hear the Torah being read. They don't even know what this is. By the way, the next verses say that they discover Sukkot. They don't know what this is. So Rosh Hashanah was like a, it was a renewal. It was a renewal yes. movement. 
it wasn't just the beginning of a new year. It was the beginning of of, of a new era. A new Jew- people. A new, a new era. Exactly. And I think it's interesting that as part of that, they have to take care of each other. They have to send portions to each other. They, right? It's not, okay, go into synagogue and pray all day. Right? And later it becomes this combination of, okay, you're going to go into synagogue. Synagogue and then you're going to have a festive meal. <laughs> so, right. You're gonna, but it's it's this joy. And I loved, Yossi, the way that you described even though maybe you were hallucinating, but the, you described <laughs> people's faces glowing. It's not like, the first yes, time. You woke up too early. Too much, that's too much <laughs> information. Yes. <laughs> but, but it's beautiful what you're talking about. So that's the first thing that I want to start with is just I actually think you can see this in our tradition. In our tradition. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. The second point in many ways mirrors the type of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur that we're – it doesn't have this – moment of return from exile. But there is a certain reenactment when you have a national celebration or commemoration to be able to do what Nehemiah is talking about. I really appreciate it. Now, on the first one, you know, I wonder, Yossi, like relating to Ilana, what would have happened if the Yom Kippur War was on Purim? Hmm. Purim would have changed. We would have integrated. We would have spoken about the danger and that we, like, we would have shifted. But it wouldn't have had. We live in which the national experiences of our community shape the Jewish calendar. And uh, they have to mirror each other. Mm, right. And there is that wholeness, that oneness of each one speaking to each other is very, very powerful. Before we come to a conclusion, any last thoughts, Yossi? Last thoughts, Ilana? I actually want to add one more piece because I'm intrigued by what you say about, you know, to what extent are these things superficial? To what extent are they going beyond the skin deep? to something that individuals experience. And I want to note that in some ways, not knowing to what extent things are going beyond this superficial level is a function that ritual does for us all the time. Ritual, when it's shared, it's ambiguous. You and I are sitting at a Seder table together. I have no idea what you're thinking and what you believe and why you're here. And you don't know what I think and what I believe and why I'm here. But we both decided to show up. And I think there's something in our like hyper individualized age and in the age where everybody has to like, well, if it's not the way that I understand it, then I can't be here with you. The idea that you could have a ritual life that is shared by people who have vastly different belief systems is is really, a, it's a treasure. It's an actual treasure. So it's a beautiful way to bring this, to, but Israel encourages you to show up. And then that's the ritual. Mm-hmm. And now welcome. However, you're going to be deeper, less deep, this way, that. But as a community, we show up. I think that's a beautiful way to conclude. Yossi, Ilana, it's beautiful being with both of wonderful you. Wonderful to be together. Um, I want to wish both of you uh, a Shana Tova, all our listeners, a Shana Tova, a great year. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kalman and edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Shana Tova, everyone. <laughs>